The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking about impeachment, of course. Also, a new episode of The Children's Hour, stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. This week, who's helping dad fight impeachment? Amy Willens has our story. But first, the new Supreme Court term began this week. For comment, we turn to Ellie Mistal. He's executive editor of Above the Law, as well as the legal director of WNYC's More Perfect. And he's a contributing writer for The Nation. Ellie Mistal, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, John. Well, Brett Kavanaugh, of course, was confirmed at the start of last year's court term. So we've already seen the new conservative majority in action. Do you expect the court this term to be any worse than it was last term? I expect it to be entirely worse, and part of the reason is because we haven't actually seen it yet. We haven't seen the new conservative majority in action. We have not seen the fully operational battle station that is the arch-conservative majority. The key issue here is that Kavanaugh last year was fundamentally part of the ruling party on cases that the court already had decided to take with Anthony Kennedy on the bench. Now, Kennedy, we can all talk about Kennedy, but he was certainly more of a moderate centrist voice. The important thing to understand is that the way a Supreme Court, the Supreme Court gets cases, you know, something like 7,000 cases are appealed to the Supreme Court every year. And they only take about 100 of them. And the way that they take them is this process of granting, of, of greening here, the case called granting cert. Um, and that process only requires four justices to want to hear the case, not five. So with Kennedy on the court, Clarence Thomas, uh, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch kind of only had three votes to take the most arch-conservative cases. Kennedy wasn't on board. And for the most part, Roberts you know, kind of doesn't want to kick the hornet's nest if he doesn't have to, right? Now with Kavanaugh been, having been there for a year, that means that he has been the fourth vote to hear a lot of the conservative cases that will be coming up before him this year. And when you look at the docket as they've laid it out, the things that they've already decided to look at, it really does, does appear um, that the court is going to be kind of fully metastasized with this kind of Republican agenda. And we're going to start seeing the effects of it this year. Okay, let's run down the big cases on the Supreme Court's docket this term. There's an abortion rights case. It centers on a Louisiana law that requires that doctors who provide abortion services also have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. This sounds very familiar. Didn't they already decide that this was unconstitutional? Indeed, you are right. It does. It sounds familiar because it is familiar, because in 2016, the court struck down almost this identical law 
um, as it applied in Texas. It was a Texas law trying to limit uh, abortion doctors to those who have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals. We call these laws trap laws. They're targeted laws uh, meant to restrict access to abortion without going after abortion kind of frontally. And in 2016, in a case called uh, Whole Women's Health Services, the Supreme Court, by a 5-3 majority, struck that law down. The difference between 2016 and 2019 is that Anthony Kennedy, who was the fifth vote to strike down that law in 2016, has been replaced by Brett Kavanaugh, and Anthony Scalia has been replaced not by Merrick Garland, but by uh, Neil Gorsuch. So with those two extra conservatives now, it is likely that the conservatives have the five votes necessary to uphold this trap law, even though they just struck it down, which flies in the face of any kind of protestation that the Supreme Court, or Brett Kavanaugh specifically, cares one whit about precedent. They don't care about precedent. They care about enforcing the Republican agenda. Part of the Republican agenda is these trap laws, and I think it's very likely that the Supreme Court will decide to affirm this Louisiana law that is nearly identical to the Texas law they struck down a few years earlier. The only kind of ray of hope here is that John Roberts, who voted to uphold the law in 2016, um, he was part of the dissenting minority in 2016, the only hope here is that he changes his legal opinion, um, not because he suddenly thinks that these laws are, are less constitutional than before, but because he respects Supreme Court precedent as an institution. Um, but that's not particularly likely. Also on the docket, there's a big gay rights case. People who say they were fired from their jobs because they were gay or, in one case, transgender. This seems to be unconstitutional under Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which ended employment discrimination in 1964, or did it? Right, right, right. I mean, look, how do you end racism? You can't just go into everybody's hearts and minds and say, stop being racist today, right? That's not how it works. What we try to do, what we try to do legally, is that we give people an opportunity to sue their employers or sue somebody who has denied them an opportunity on issues of race or gender inequality, right? What Title VII, the Civil Rights Act, does is make it a, a federal issue um, and a federal crime to fire somebody from a protected class, you know, uh, the uh, ethnicity would count, race would count, gender would count, to fire somebody from a protected class from their employment. Now, when the act was written in 1964, it says you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex as well as, you know, bubble, all these other things, right? There is some, uh, I guess, debate as to whether or not sex, as it's written in that statute, includes members of the LGBT community or not. Now, conservatives will argue that it, A, doesn't, because it doesn't explicitly say sexual orientation, and B, they will argue that the writers of the 1964 Civil Rights Act did not intend to protect gays and lesbians when they were writing that act. They're probably right that it wasn't intended to protect gays and lesbians. I mean, this is we're talking about people who, at the time in 1964, were still busy criminalizing homosexual conduct um, in some situations. So they probably didn't believe that gays and lesbians should be protected. And I 
don't give a damn what they thought in 1964. Because one of the things that, that, that we have seen, that we have had in this country for the past 20 or so years, is that we have interpreted at the federal level, at the Supreme Court level, um, the Civil Rights Act to include protections for gays and lesbians. This makes all of the sense in the world. If I say that you, if I tell my male employee, you can have sex with a woman, but I tell my female employee, you cannot have sex with a woman, well then guess what? I am discriminating against my female employee on the basis of her sex. That point and click should be enough to include gays and lesbians and transgendered people into the protections of the Civil Rights Act. But, you know, conservatives have five votes. They have the power, and they will probably interpret the Civil Rights Act as dully as possible. One thing that we have to remember, and, I, and I've been telling people this a lot as we talk about the case, if the court strikes down LGBTQ protections over the course of this case, the very next thing that needs to happen is that Congress needs to reinstall those protections into the Civil Rights Act via legislation. The Supreme Court will not say it is unconstitutional to protect gays and lesbians. They will say that the Civil Rights Act wasn't written to apply to them. So we can just write the Civil Rights Act to apply to them. Nancy Pelosi and House Democrats, they have already passed a bill called the Equality Act that specifically would reinsert sorry, explicitly insert gays and lesbians into the protections and transgendered people into the protections of the Civil Rights Act. That bill is, like so many things, sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk right now, and he refuses to bring it up for a vote. The court this term will also take up DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program. The question here is whether Trump needs a good reason to cancel the program. I say he does. What do you think the court majority will say? Yeah, this is, uh, this is a little bit interesting because there's almost no reason for this case to be here other than to put John Roberts in a bad spot. Like, there's no, <laughs> there's no good reason for the case to be here. There was one decision at the Ninth Circuit level saying that Trump can end DACA for no reason. Okay. But there were two other cases going on at the D.C. Circuit and the Second Circuit about the same issue. The court, usually under normal circumstances, would wait for all of those cases to go through the system um, before taking the case and making a final ruling. And then B, on just a kind of raw political kind of sensibility issue, we're about to have an election, right? This DACA issue might well resolve itself through the normal political process of either electing a new president or electing a new Congress that is capable of passing comprehensive immigration reform, right? So we don't actually need the court to be involved here. But like I said, it only takes four votes, not five, for the court to make a case. And the arch-conservative bloc, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, want this kind of rubber stamping of the president's what I would call kind of unhinged bigotry towards uh, Mexicans. There is no legally valid reason for this program to end. And I say legally valid, it's an important distinction. I'm not saying that the president doesn't have the power to end DACA. He does, right? It was an executive order by Obama. It can be undone by an executive order. But undoing a law or doing a law, even through executive action, we have this thing called, we have a standard of review called arbitrary and capricious. And all of that means is that 
a official who makes a rule has to have a valid reason for making the rule. It can't be a whim. It can't be because you saw something on Fox News last night and you want to change the entire legal structure of the country. That's just not how it's allowed to work. And so the challenge for Trump right now is that he has to get his lawyers to get up in court and explain a reason for ending DACA that isn't just about cruelty and bigotry. And so far, they have been unable to do that. But this is the same court that allowed his wall-funding stealing injunction to go forward, even though he didn't have a reason. They allowed his Muslim ban to go forward, even though he didn't have a good reason. And they allowed his massive change to the asylum rules to go forward, even though he had no good, non-bigoted reason for, ending the per- for changing those laws. So I don't have a ton of confidence in the court right now to stand up to Donald Trump, um, but Roberts is Roberts is uncomfortable with this issue. Um, you saw him go against the Trump in the, uh, Trump in the census um, case. That was whether or not they could add a citizenship questions to the census. Um, so Roberts is the person to watch here. I don't know how he'll go, and I don't have a lot of confidence, but he could always choose this moment uh, to stand up to President Trump's um, ridiculousness when it comes to this, these kinds of rules. Arbitrary and capricious, as you say, is the standard of judicial review in this case. However, Trump's lawyers will say that the court needs to treat the executive branch with maximum deference. I hate maximum deference to the executive branch, but that's an argument that usually works. Look, and I, I'm, I'm agreeing with those lawyers. lawyers that in, in, in a review such as this, the court should treat the executive branch with maximum deference. I totally agree with that. Where I disagree, maximum deference still contemplates not being deferential, right? Like you, still, <laughs> like you wouldn't have to say maximum deference if there wasn't still a little bit of non-deference that you were holding on to, right? Arbitrary and capricious is an exceedingly low standard. Most presidents and most executive agencies are able to clear the hurdle easily, yes. and that's because they don't need a good reason. They just need a valid one. Like, I, 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 could, I could say I am, I am opening my uh, door uh, because I am not afraid of criminals. All right, that might not be a great reason, but it's a valid one. I can't say I'm opening my door because I'm trying to heat the whole neighborhood. Like that's that that just doesn't that's not true. That's not that's not possible. And so that that's really the difference and that's that's the level of deference that we're talking about. If Trump had any reason for ending this program other than Mexicans are criminal and rape criminals and rapists, he would be able to end the program. But so far his best argument is I don't need a reason at all which is not a reason. Um, when Obama did it, it was illegal, so we're fixing it, which is not a reason because the Republicans already tried to make DACA under Obama illegal and failed. So the court has already ruled that DACA is not illegal, so fixing it because it's illegal, it's not a good reason because it's not illegal. And then the third reason that they kind of throw out there is that DACA encourages uh, women uh, to, to immigrate to the country, which would be a valid reason if he was had you know one shred of evidence that that is such. Unfortunately for him, the government has not been able to provide one shred of evidence that DACA does the bad things that Trump claims it does. So that's why we're here, man. It, it's 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 frustrating because 
because again, because the bar is so low. There was a report about a year ago. I, I, I'm sure you can can find it if you guys Google. Um, there was a report about a year ago in the Washington Post um, that talked about how Donald Trump has lost in court more than any modern president. Like it's it's like some kind of record level of of judicial ineffectiveness on the part of the Trump administration, and it is because they consistently fail to make valid legal arguments. They do not know, potentially, what a valid legal argument is even supposed to sound like. So again and again and again, they keep running into this problem where the courts are generally happy to let the president do what he wants as long as what he wants is backed up by any evidence or any fact or any shred of truth, and Trump consistently is unable to provide that. Ellie Mistal wrote about the new Supreme Court term for the nation. Read them at thenation.com. Ellie, thanks very much. I hope we can come back to you as cases are argued and decided in the coming months. I'm happy to come on your show and cry. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, John. Now it's time for another episode of The Children's Hour, stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. This week, who's helping Dad fight impeachment? For comment, we turn to the head of Ivanka Watch, Amy Willens. She was a Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, let's start with the Trump kids' tweets in the last week. What do they tell us about what everybody is doing to help their dad avoid being convicted of high crimes and misdemeanors and removed from office? Start with number one, Don Jr. Don Jr. seems to be attacking Adam Schiff and uh, questioning the sincerity of the impeachment process. And he's also uh, still on the case of... AOC, of course, one of his favorite uh, whipping girls, and another favorite whipping girl, Greta Thunberg. Um, He's been retweeting stuff about how uh, she has mental illness problems and is OCD and all this uh, right-wing attack on the kids' climate change uh, speeches. And the younger brother, Eric, what is he tweeting about? So Eric has been making the media rounds, especially on Fox News, of course, on the case of the Bidens and their corruption, and Hunter Biden in particular, because it takes a son to know a son. Jared. Jared doesn't tweet, but Jared is in the news. Jared has a new position. He's like the man of all positions, minister without portfolio. He's now supposedly the head of the impeachment war room in the White House, along with uh, Chief of Staff Mike Mulvaney. You've been listening to CNN, the New York Times says there is no impeachment war room. It's just the usual arrangement at the executive office. The chief of staff is in charge and and Jared. And there's Jared. He's available. What the heck? He didn't quite make peace in the Middle East, so that's not that pressing right now with the Israeli election brouhaha. So now it's time for him to deal as well with the impeachment process as he has with the warring factions in the Middle East. And finally, 
Ivanka, what is Ivanka's role in fighting impeachment? She's not really talking about the impeachment process at all on Twitter that we see. It's like it's not even happening in Ivanka world. She never mentions the I word. She carries on business as usual. And what is business as usual for Ivanka? Since she gave up her actual fashion brand, her business in the White House has been empowering women's uh, economic futures, doing business for women's business. And Ivanka's big news in the last week is that she went to Texas for an event at Google. Yeah, it's not really what you always expect the Trump people to be doing, going to Google in Texas. But she went to Google because there's this thing that she's been working on for a year called the Pledge to America's Workers. And Google has signed on to this um, to help train American workers to work in IT, to be tech savvy. They've got something like uh, 300 giant commitments from various people to help retrain America's workers. But Those are commitments. I don't know what a commitment really is to something called Pledge to America's Workers. Sounds a little like the Pledge Allegiance, doesn't it? (laughs) You pledge, but really, are you you really there with us? And before she went to Texas, she went on a big Latin American trip. She was greeted like a head of state everywhere she went. And there are, of course, reasons for that. She went to banquets. She went to uh, very fancy luncheons with heads of state in uh, Paraguay, Argentina, Colombia. Uh, And she did some work in Venezuela, too, which we can talk about on the border. They greet her like a head of state because she's the daughter of a head of state. So what are they going to do? But she has a program there that she's working on called Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative. It's got microfinancing in it. It has um, aid projects for various women's empowerment. It's, it's really interesting to me because it's just like all the things Ivanka does for women. It doesn't consider health care. It doesn't consider reproductive care and management. And it also does not make a mention of domestic violence, which is a gigantic problem in Latin America. But none of that is mentioned because it's not about caring for women. It's supposedly about getting more money for women's projects. Also, you know, it's it's a little disturbing to see her going on a women's empowerment program in Latin America when she is inside an administration that won't even allow the word abortion to be pronounced by any institution that it funds. If you use this word, the A word, you will have your funding cut off by the United States government around the world. So, and there she is. She too is not mentioning it. Maybe she's afraid Trump will cut off her uh, allowance. She uses this uh, Latin America project also for her own benefit. She likes to appear in photographs with indigenous peoples looking happy in her designer clothing. Then there's one great picture of her dancing with um, a Paraguayan seeming market lady. Um, But if you look at the picture closely, you'll see, yes, she has her arm around the little Paraguayan lady and the lady has her arm around Ivanka. But in the background, there's no one except staff people, security people, and like USAID functionaries. Just look at the picture closely. Ivanka does have one other job helping raise money from rich people. There was just a meeting of 120 top donors in Jackson Hole. What is Ivanka's role at these events? This is um, a new plan 
to raise money for the Trump campaign with traditional Republican donors who haven't loved the Trumps that much and aren't really their natural base, but do have a lot of money to contribute. And Ivanka's role is to be a star and to be a celebrity and tell inside stories about the family and funny stories about Donald. And at this donor meeting, she said a very interesting thing. They asked her what she had gotten from her parents. And she said, well, from my mom, I learned how to be a successful businesswoman, a successful woman in the world. And from my dad, I got my moral compass. She got her moral compass from Donald Trump. I wouldn't give her money for that. <laughs> I looked into it a little bit. Apparently, it's a, it's a talking point. She often says that she got her moral or ethical compass from Donald Trump. Perhaps not the greatest thing to be saying right now. Let's go back two years ago when Ivanka and Jared first went to the White House. You and I on this podcast talked about them being a moderating influence that would temper the worst instincts of her father uh, and gently guide him onto the path of the New York moderate, centrist, socially liberal people that they are. Is there any evidence that she has succeeded at this or even that she has tried to do this? There have been little shreds of evidence here and there that she's tried. Uh, but I think that he's gone beyond that now. He's not a person to be reasoned with right now. And I don't think that she wants to go there. She wants him to love her and care about her and take her seriously. And if she tries to correct him, he's not a man who's going to be corrected. We see that now. We see that he is beyond correction. Recently, she said, my father has never listened to me about anything. And this strikes a chord with many women whose fathers never listen to them about anything. The idea that we ever thought that a man like Donald Trump was going to listen to a woman about anything, it's just... I don't know what we were thinking, John. Finally, there's still talk that Ivanka seems to think she could be the first woman president. This was reported by Michael Wolf in F Fire and Fury. I think there is a chance that she believes that's a possibility. Look, her father is very popular. 60 million Americans voted for that man. More might vote for him the next time. He's done such a terrific job. So if he leaves her this fabulous legacy with, if I may say so, John, on this program, real America, she could be the first woman president. How about that, John? Can I say that on this podcast? <laughs> the other news on the Ivanka watch front is that New York Magazine has launched an Ivanka, uh, New York Magazine has launched an all Ivanka podcast it's hosted by Vanessa Gregoriadis. Um, it's, uh, it costs money. You have to pay $7.99 a month to Luminary, unlike the 10,000 other political podcasts, which are free. I know you've listened to some of this. What's it called? Tabloid, The Making of Ivanka Trump. It's not a current events thing. It's like a biography uh, thing. What's the new Ivanka podcast on Luminary like? Well, it's sort of cultural criticism of Ivanka, with Ivanka at the center. And one of the things I'm really interested in is young Ivanka versus Ivanka now, although she's still young. But she used to be a brown-haired, 
young girl who went to lots of parties and went to really fancy boarding schools, where actually Trump girl world is not considered the coolest thing you can be. To be a, a sort of playboy model is not the height of what Choate and Chapin and Brearley girls think is uh, what they should be working for. But there was clearly a moment in Ivanka where she said to herself, I'm not going to be the girl my schools would make me into. I'm going to go model while I'm a chote. I'm going to dye my hair back to the blonde it was when I was little and daddy loved to stroke my head. And I'm not going to wear, you know, real woman clothes. My brand is not going to be real working women clothes. And I'm going to wear, you know, sexy clothes that daddy would love. And I think what's really interesting about this is this is a thing that will actually, if she ever runs for president, would make her more palatable to the Trump base than if she walked around like Jackie Kennedy in, you know, fancy designer clothing. I think it's, it's, I don't think it's a calculated move. It's a move made because of her love for her father. It's an unusual calculation to be a sex pot, sort of, and be maybe a candidate for high office. Let's say Hillary didn't do that. Let's also point out Elizabeth Warren doesn't do that. And they're making one calculation, which is a woman should not be sexy. She should be more in the male world, able to deal with high power things. But Ivanka is thinking about popularity. And, you know, you wouldn't say her father really should be in the world of political uh, operatives and candidates, but he does it with his blonde tuft and his ridiculousness. And she's making, maybe making, or at least is living up to another calculation, uh, one of whose foremothers is Sarah Palin, who, although she wore pants a lot and stuff, dressed sexy. Amy Willens, the head of Ivanka Watch. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks very much, John. Which Republicans has Donald Trump betrayed and humiliated this week? For some answers, we turn to Jeet here. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. Jeet, welcome back. Good to be here. So who did Trump betray and humiliate this week? Well, it's probably a long list, but uh, one can certainly start with uh, Rick Perry, his uh, energy secretary, who Trump basically implicated as the, the source of the uh, Ukrainian uh, scandal. And then uh, there's also Mitt Romney, who Trump had interviewed to be a secretary of state. And uh, Trump used uh, a vulgarity that I won't repeat here on Twitter to uh, denounce uh, Romney and basically um, uh, insulted him at great length. He matters because he is a senator, of course. Did he say he would vote to convict Trump in the Senate trial and remove him from office? No, he did not. Uh, I, I think uh, Romney has gone much farther than uh, any other elected Republican official. What Mitt Romney has given us is the verbal equivalent of furring your brow. Okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, getting back to the story of how Trump wanted to trade military aid to another country for dirt on a political opponent. We're recording this on Tuesday at midday, and there's a new poll from the Washington Post which found that most Americans now support an impeachment inquiry. 58% of Americans uh, support an impeachment inquiry, and 49% support removing Trump from office. 
only 38% oppose an inquiry. This was all adults, but the figures for registered voters is about the same. What should we make of this number? It's quite a bit bigger than it was two weeks ago. It shows how much leadership matters. I think that there's Trump has been from day one an unpopular president, and there's been a lot of worry in the population about his actions, his instability, and uh, really his, his open criminality. I mean, I think you just have to read his tweets to realize he's obstructing justice. But people didn't want to jump on the impeachment bandwagon, you know, until they got uh, messages from Democratic leaders. And I, I think we could have been at this place much earlier. I think the other thing to maybe emphasize, though, is that public opinion matters to a degree that it'll embolden the Democrats. But the ultimate uh, issue of removal is going to be in the Senate. And that's a very steep hill because uh, you need, uh, you know, 67 senators and 20 of those have to be Republicans. And we're not seeing any Republicans really coming out in favor of removal. Of course, if we go to the Watergate parallel, the only case, anything like this one, uh, it took a very long time for the Republicans in the Senate to come around, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It did. And basically, you need to have to have really uh, a smoking gun of evidence that came out in, uh, you know, the Watergate tapes and other documents for the Republicans to come on board. And I think that there's a further Watergate aspect, which is that in Watergate, the Republicans had an incentive to cut their loss. Nixon uh, couldn't run again. You know, he had been elected twice. They were going to get a new candidate anyways. So why don't you just clear the plate and get this Watergate over with? But now Trump is the Republican standard bearer. He's almost certainly going to be the you know, nominee again in 2020. And so the whole incentive structure is very different. And there's perhaps a third lesson from Watergate, which is that even in Watergate, the Republicans that held up longest in supporting Nixon and were most vehement in coming to his defense, notably Ronald Reagan, they were the ones that built up a future in the party because they proved to partisan Republicans that they were really party men and would stick with uh, the leader to the end. And uh, if you look at the people who were pro-Nixon in 74, it's like Reagan, Bush Sr., and Bob Dole, all of whom went on to become Republican presidential nominees. And the, the people that you know came out early against Nixon did not fare so well. Yes, that's a, that's a very important parallel to keep in mind. On the other hand, uh, how many Republicans in the Senate today do you think agree with Trump's principal defense that his call to the president of Ukraine was, quote, perfect? <laughs> I, I, I think that, uh, I mean, it depends. How many agree in private or in public? You know, former Republican Senator Jeff Flake said, you know, if you had a secret vote, uh, he thinks you would get a you know, majority of the Republicans voting for removal. Well, you know, we don't have a secret vote. And so in public, you know, like only Romney is really coming out and criticizing him. I think uh, Collins is maybe also expressing like very mild concern. I, I think that the party is choosing a path not of like strongly defending Trump, but maybe of trying to keep quiet. Silence is the best policy. These silent Republicans. And meanwhile, Trump is, of course, far from silent. His view seems to be, you can't impeach me, I impeach you. He's called for the impeachment of Pelosi and Adam Schiff on charges of treason. I saw that Eugene Robinson, Washington Post columnist, said that Trump's defense on impeachment charges is, quote, incoherent to the point of lunacy, close quote. I wonder if you think that's going too far. 
Oh, no, I mean, like, the stuff that Trump is saying is, like, you know, I mean, aside from being, like, you know, sort of absurd conspiracy theories, there's just some why you can't impeach, you know, members of Congress or the Senate. That's not how it's done. And I actually honestly think that his these attacks themselves, if we had a strong Congress and a strong Senate, they would be also grounds for impeachment. You cannot have a president calling for um, members of Congress we tried for treason, uh, the punishment of which is execution. That seems like a flagrant uh, violation of like any sort of democratic norms. Well, let's assume that the, the large majority of Republicans will stay loyal to Trump through the 2020 election and that he will be at the head of the ticket in 2020. That seems very likely. Let's not forget how Trump won in 2016 It was because he carried Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, the states that we all thought were behind the blue wall. But last year, all three of those states elected Democratic senators and Democratic governors. And often by quite big margins in Wisconsin, Senator Tammy Baldwin picked up 14% of Trump's 2016 voters. In Pennsylvania, Senator Bob Casey won 12% of them. In Michigan, Senator Debbie Stabenow got 9% of them. Do you think that something like this is more likely or less likely to happen in 2020, assuming Trump stays at the head of the ticket? I think that Trump is like significantly tarnished and a uh, portion of those Trump supporters, especially the sort of you know Obama-Trump voters, are going to return back to the fold. I mean, a lot depends on who the uh, Democrats run again. I mean, my main worry is that it will be someone uh, like Joe Biden, who Trump can tarnish as being a part of the old order, and also who's basically selling nostalgia, which I don't think that voters really want. So I think that the prospects for Democrats are actually quite good in the presidential race. You know, like they don't repeat the mistakes of the past. Jeet here. Read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Jeet. Always great to have you on the show. It's always great to be on the show. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of the nation. Katrina Vandenhoevel is publisher and editorial director of the nation. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week 
for more political talk without the boring parts. 